Acts 19, Part 2, from the sermon series, Acts the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Sunita Ponton. Good morning, Metro. Good morning. morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God our Father, we thank you for all that our eyes have seen and all that our ears have heard, God, we thank you for the way that you have already moved inside of this service. And so God, now we come to you in this preaching moment. Lord, I have prayed and prepared as best I know how, Lord, but you must preach this message. And God, I have um, I've studied your word, Lord, but you must send your Holy Spirit to give it life. And God, I've written words on paper, but I pray that you might write them on our hearts, God, that we might move and operate in the power of your Holy Spirit. In your word, you said that your word would not return to you empty, but it will accomplish that for which you desire and achieve the purpose for which you send it. That is our prayer this morning. It's through your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when you hear the term, the power of the Holy Spirit, what do you think of? Do you, do you think of people like falling out on the ground when the preacher barely touches them? Or, or maybe you think of someone who um, starts walking after they've been wheelchair bound for years. Maybe you think of someone who's been freed from their addictions immediately, right on the spot. Maybe someone receives a financial blessing that saves them from foreclosure. Well, I believe that the majority of us, when we think of the term, the the power of the Holy Spirit, we think of these grand gestures. And I believe in that. Let me be clear. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to heal, to free from addiction, to provide financial blessings, to, to do what we think is impossible. The word of God says, Jesus says that when he goes to the Father, that he will give us the power to do even greater things than he has done. And I believe that. But I think we have a tendency to think of the extravagance of the Holy Spirit and overlook the ways the Holy Spirit works daily in our lives. Many of us think that unless we have this miraculous encounter or this miraculous gift that the Holy Spirit is not not at work inside of us. And that's just not the case. The Holy Spirit does live inside of you and it does have power inside of you. And so we want to talk today about what does it look like? What are the consequences of the the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us? If you would open your Bibles, we are looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. If you have your Bibles or on the phone, you can look there. And of course, it'll be on the screen behind me. Acts 19, verses 23 through 41. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That means the Christians. They were called the way at the time. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, an idol, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty." 
When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The, pe- the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance about anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So in some ways, today's sermon is a part two from from, uh, Pastor Doug's sermon last week. Paul is still in Ephesus, and Ephesus is this bustling cosmopolitan region. It's the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It's located in what is now Turkey. It was a metropolitan city, but also the center of the most popular cult, the the cult of Artemis, the, the worship of Artemis. Artemis was considered an Asian mother goddess, the goddess of nature who would protect and provide for all living things. Now there are 33 shrines, there were 33 shrines throughout the region, but the temple in Artemis was the largest. It was the site of Artemis worship. The temple was built of pure marble and was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and it had 127 columns, about 60 feet each, 60 feet high each. It was double the size of the Parthenon and considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, now it's been destroyed and rebuilt several times, and only what, what stands now is a foundation in one single column. That's the only thing that marks its current existence. But th- at the time, there was this huge contingent of, art, of, of idol worship in Ephesus, and people would come from out of town to worship here. But something else is happening in Ephesus at the time. Paul has been there for three years already, longer than he stayed in any other place, and God is using him in a tremendous way. The Holy Spirit is moving, and people are becoming believers. And what we find is there becomes this tension between the people of God called the way and the idol worshipers, and particularly those who benefit from idol worship. The power of the Holy Spirit is at work, and people are not happy. 
Last week, Pastor Doug challenged us to live within the power of the Holy Spirit. This week, we will look at the consequences of that power. What happens when we actually allow the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives? The first consequence of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is major individual change. Major individual change. With the power of the Holy Spirit comes major individual change. Let's go back to a few verses from last week, verses 17 through 19. And this is right after people have seen how the Holy Spirit cannot be co-opted or abused or harnessed by people. And it's more powerful than humans. So in verses 17 through 19, it says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done, idol worship. A member who had, a number, excuse me, who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After hearing the word of God and seeing the power of the Holy Spirit on display, people were transformed. But it was more than an emotional experience. It prompted a change in behavior. They believed in Jesus. They believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. They confessed their sins and they demonstrated true repentance. They changed their behavior. Those who practiced sorcery, they gave up their scrolls. They burned them publicly. But too often, I think we come to church just for the feeling of it. We want to feel like that warm feeling inside, that stirring in our spirits. We want to be brought to tears. We want to feel overwhelmed by the love of God. And I do hope that happens to you. I do hope that every time you come into worship, you feel overwhelmed by the, the presence of the Lord. But the people of Ephesus show us something else. They show us how to respond to that feeling, how to respond to God. The people of Ephesus show us that belief in the Savior is more than a feeling. It has to prompt a change in our lives. An individual change has to take place in each one of us. Because see, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and you let it do its work, it has to produce change. That's the goal. A change in behavior, a change in who we are for the Ephesians, it meant turning away from idols so much so that they, they burned their scrolls and did it publicly so the world could see it. That's true change. That's true transformation. That's what we talk about here at Metro, transformation. That's the goal of every Sunday. Not just that we have this emotional feeling for an hour and a half, but you have a transformative encounter with God that results in changed behavior. But too often we, we come to church and we're wondering, well, well, who's on worship team that day? Who's preaching that day? But regardless of if you, if you felt something, if the word of God is preached in truth, it's a good Sunday. It doesn't matter how it's packaged, it doesn't matter who delivers it, if the word of God goes forth, it's been a good worship service. Amen? Amen? Our jobs as listeners is to receive that word 
and find out what does God want me to do with it and respond to it. Did you walk in worried? Will you leave out confidently trusting God? Do you walk in lonely? Will you leave out knowing the presence of God is always with you? Did you walk in feeling ashamed? But will you walk out knowing that you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and hold your head up high? Did you walk in apathetic, but are you now inspired to serve? Did you walk in holding a grudge? Are you now committed to forgiveness? What will you do differently now that the word of God has been preached? That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. That's why we have next steps at the end of the sermon. What are you going to do differently? How has your life been changed since you heard the word of God? For those in Ephesus, they gave up their idols. There was a change that took place on the inside of them and it manifested on the outside. And let's be clear, their change was a costly change. They practiced sorcery. They had bought and collected all these scrolls and the Bible tells us that when they calculated the, the, the value of all of the scrolls that they burned, it was 50,000 drachmas. Each drachma was a day's wages. But they had heard the message of the gospel and they made a change, even a costly one. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel message. Are we willing to make a change? Or are we just talking about change? I, I'm gonna put myself out there for a second and I'm not saying this because I want you to come up to me afterwards and tell me what to do, right? <laughs> when I first came to Metro, I was like, this is great. I'm going to lose weight. I am going to walk to work and I'm not going to eat as much. Because see, at my last job, we ate all the time. It was a small staff and there was this woman, um, she loved to cook all the time and she was Jamaican and she would make like jerk chicken and oxtails and curry chicken and pizza rice and she would just bring it for no reason. It was just Tuesday and she wanted to feed us. And, and we would have these staff parties and, and, like, and I just couldn't resist it. I'm a big foodie, I couldn't resist it. And so I thought when I came to Metro that things would be different. And then I realized that Metro loves to eat. We love to eat. And, and I got to Metro and I also found two other Jamaican families that also give me great food. <laughs> But if you know the layout of our, of our office, of the Metro office, you know that my office kind of is situated in the little kitchenette area. And so when my door is open, I can see all of the pastries and the cake and the snacks that all of you leave over the weekend when you have your activities. And some days I can resist them. Some days I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to eat it. But then other days it's really, really hard. And I say, no, don't eat it, don't do it. And I, you know, I promise myself I'm not gonna keep eating this way. Right, <laughs> it, it, it lasts for like two weeks. And then I go back to my regular self. Because the truth is I really don't want to change. And I think oftentimes we like the idea of change. We like the idea of transformation but are we willing to do it? 
Are we willing to make the change? Otherwise, it's just talk. But if the Holy Spirit is really at work in our lives, then it causes transformation. It causes a change in behavior. The the first sign, the first consequence of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives is individual change. Now the second consequence of the power of the Holy Spirit is community shift. There will be a shift in the community culture as a result of the Holy Spirit at work. And this builds right off of the first one, right? When a bunch of individuals start to make Holy Spirit-inspired changes in their lives, it creates a community shift. The culture, the community cannot stay the same when the Holy Spirit is at work. Let's look at uh, three verses, verse 20, verse 23, and verse 26. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Verse 23, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. And verse 26, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Because of Paul's preaching and demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, many people are being converted. Now, although we don't have the sermon like we do in other parts of the Bible, we do know what Paul was saying because Demetrius lets us know. He says, gods made by human hands are no gods at all. It was a simple message and people received it. And it actually makes logical sense. How could I worship something that I or you created? Right? People understood that. And the message is getting out. The Holy Spirit is moving. The flame has been lit and it's burning up this community. And because the individual changes were happening with more and more people, it creates a community shift. Each individual living out their faith caused a community shift. It's the power of the unity that the Holy Spirit brings. And that community shift was powerful, so powerful that it became dangerous to the Ephesian weight of life. It was such a problem for the surrounding culture that the Bible says there arose a great disturbance about the way. Don't you just love that? When was the last time our faith created a great disturbance? They were so countercultural that their way of life was no longer hidden. The Ephesian church had matured to the point that their defined identity influenced the surrounding idolatrous culture. They weren't buying idols anymore. And because they had made this commitment, it actually affected the community. The power of the Holy Spirit working in the multitude of individuals resulted in an economic threat to the local idol business. Christians stopped buying idols and the idol business could not handle it. It tanked. Can you imagine that? We have to ask ourselves, are we making the world uncomfortable? Does it matter that there are a bunch of people who call themselves Christian? Are we countercultural or are we culturally normative? The church actually has a history of shifting culture. The first hospital was founded by a Christian. 
Saint Basil of Caesarea in about 370 AD. He built the hospital for the care of the sick, including the lepers who were always considered to be outcasts. And even today, the Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental provider of health care in the entire world. They operate about 18,000 clinics and over 5,000 hospitals throughout the world. And this care for the sick derives specifically from our Christian values. It's what we saw Jesus do, and so it's what we do. And because Christians placed a premium on healthcare, others followed suit. Even universities. Harvard University was the first university in the United States. It was founded in 1636, and it was founded, get this, to train Christians for clergy. Most of the early universities started that way. Christian values were so important to Harvard that in rule two of the rule and precepts of Harvard University adopted in 1646, it says this, and I quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. That was Harvard's statement. Sadly, Harvard and most other large universities have strayed away from, from their founding, but can you imagine how different the world would be if they had not shifted away from their Christian values? Talk about a community shift. According to Pew Research Center, 71% of Americans call themselves Christian. That's huge. Well, what if we all practice our faith in such a way that it actually had an impact on every aspect of our lives? Think about your finances. Did you know that there's something called socially responsible investing? Socially responsible investing calls us to not just care about the financial gains of a corporation, but it calls us to look at their ethical practices and see if they align with our own. If they don't, we don't invest in that company. For example, you can refrain from investing in companies that engage in products and activities like pornography or gambling or militarism or, or the prisons. You can decide to only invest in companies that adhere to child labor laws or, or that are good for the environment. What if Christians decided that we are only going to invest in companies that align with our Christian values? Don't you think the world would take notice? Don't you think we would create a community global shift that would force companies to operate according to God's kingdom values and not just the dollar? Think about the Orthodox Jewish community. They refuse to work on their Sabbath. Go to Cedar Lane in Teaneck on a Saturday. Half of the businesses are closed. And you know what? We fall in line. We shop on Friday or we shop on Sunday if we want to go to Cedar Lane. 
What about Christians? Parents, and don't throw anything at me. But parents, we gotta talk about Sunday morning sports. I know. But shouldn't Christian parents say, you know what? My child is not gonna participate in sports on Sunday morning. What if you all got together and said, you know what? We're gonna do it in the afternoon. Because my child needs to be in worship. Because we would send a signal to the world and to our children that God is first in our lives. And if we're going to invest our time in anything, it's going to be in the worship and service of God. Numerically, there are way more Christians than anyone else. If we got together as the body of Christ working in unity, we could shift the culture. Our country might reflect more of God's kingdom values. But are we scared? Too many of us conform to the cultural norm rather than change in accordance with our Christian values. We see an example of it right here in our text, verse 32 through 34. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the Ephesians were so upset with Paul and the Christians for, um, for talking about idol worship that they started a riot that spilled out into this larger theater. And once in the theater, in the masses, the Jews pulled along this man, Alexander, to speak for them. And Alexander's task was to tell the entire community that they were not like the Christians. The Jews were not like the Christians. They didn't have a problem with idol worship. Well, this is problematic because if you remember the Bible, the second commandment is that we shall make no graven image, right? We shall not worship idols. And Jews actually follow that. But this set of Jews was okay with idol worship in their midst. They allowed it to take place. But the Holy Spirit working inside of the Christian community challenged that Ephesian way of life. When the Holy Spirit is at work, it creates a community shift. And when all of us together in alignment with the Holy Spirit start working, we can shift the community. We create the community shift. So the consequences of the power of the Holy Spirit at work are individual change, community shift, and third resistance. There will be resistance to the Holy Spirit at work. The enemy does not want to see us change individually, and the enemy certainly doesn't want to see a, a community or cultural shift. Look at how it plays out in our text, in verses 23 through 32. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. 
He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only in our trade, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Demetrius is a silversmith. His job was to create these idols, to build them out of silver. And he would, um, and he got, because of this, the worship of Artemis was so popular in, the, in Ephesus and the surrounding region that idol worship was actually very lucrative. It was a lucrative business to be a part of. So when Paul starts preaching about the fallacy and the sinfulness of idol worship, this becomes a huge problem for Demetrius and all those who make their living making idols. So Demetrius's real concern was financial, the financial implications of what Paul was preaching. So what does he do? He gets a bunch of the craftsmen together and he gets them all riled up and he starts a riot. He gets them together and he says, look, I have three problems with Paul's uh, teaching. One, he's making us lose business. Two, people are gonna stop caring about the temple. And three, Artemis will lose her glory. And what's even worse, if Artemis loses her glory, so does Ephesus, because that's where the temple was located. And this was a compelling argument to the craftsmen. Demetrius is able to mix religion and patriotism with his financial interests. And he realizes that this is the way he gets more attention. He doesn't care about Artemis. He's an opportunist, just worried about his money. And the gospel message is a threat. The Holy Spirit moving in the lives of the Ephesians is a problem for him. The gospel is pulling people away from idol worship. And if people are no longer worshiping idols, they're no longer, they're no longer buying idols. When the power of the Holy Spirit is at work, it changes people and communities and the enemy is not pleased. You can guarantee there will be opposition the gospel is a threat to our way of life. And the gospel is most controversial when it comes into conflict with economic interests. So Demetrius' solution was to cause a riot that I'm sure he hopes would lead to Paul being beaten or arrested or run out of town or something. The enemy will try to stop you when you are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. The enemy will try to stop us when we begin shifting the culture. 
I'm amazed being a part of this process to build a community center in Inglewood. I really do believe this is what God wants and I'm seeing the community shift in so many ways. Inglewood is, is divided into four local political wards. And traditionally, these wards have been segregated ethnically, religiously, and socioeconomically. As a result, there's a lot of division and separation within the city. And in many ways, Inglewood, I mean, it's like the tale of two cities or maybe even four cities because of the division. But there is this push that's taking place right now to see a united Inglewood. There is a push to see this city help its most vulnerable residents. And Metro probably didn't start it, but we're certainly a part of it. And it's amazing to be a part of this shift with people of faith. Just this week, Pastor Peter and I received an email from the pastor of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Inglewood. And he said, beginning today and for the next three Sundays in July, they're gonna be doing a community walk. Every Sunday in July, walking around the community, getting to know it, and coming together for prayer. I hope you will join us this afternoon if you can. It's catching on, the, the momentum is building. We need to love this city more and pray for it. Jeremiah tells us to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. And it's wonderful to see this shift happening, but on the other hand, there's a lot of resistance. The biggest obstacle is, a, is more of a passive resistance, a procrastination by city government and an unwillingness to move. But there's also this financial issue. If the city gives us Liberty School, then that land is tax-free. But if they sell it to a developer who might want to build luxury homes, luxury apartments, they get a whole bunch of money. And we can't compete with that. There are financial implications to being people-centered and not money-centered as a community. And we have to decide as a community that we care more about people than we do about dollars. And honestly, people of faith need to be leading this conversation because we know that each person is made in the image of God and deserves to live a life of dignity their entire life long. But the opposition is only looking at financial interests. And it can be disheartening, I'm not gonna lie, but we will continue to press. We are not giving up. There will always be resistance, but we move forward with the power of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we continue to push and we continue to move because as the, God, as the Bible tells us, if God be for us, who can be against us? So when the power of the Holy Spirit is at work, we can, ex we can expect to see individual change and, and community shift and resistance, but we can also expect to see God's protection. The greatest consequence to the power of the Holy Spirit at work is God's protection. Amen. She's not the only one who knows this, right? <laughs> right? The consequence of the power of the Holy Spirit is God's protection. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
We see in our scripture how God protects. Paul had been having a rough time up until this point, but here God gives him a break. God gives him a reprieve and it's a blessing. There will be resistance and sometimes we will have to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But there are also times when God provides us with his divine protection and shelters us from danger. Look at it in the text. We're looking at verses 28 through 32. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The riot had begun and there was mass confusion. People were in chaos, they're up in arms. Paul wants to go and address the crowd. Presumably, he wants to preach or to to plead his case, but his friends won't let him go. They advise him to stay back. Even some top officials tell Paul, it's too dangerous for you to be there. When I see this, I am just in awe of God. Do you know that that God fights our battles when we remain faithful? God sent people into Paul's life to keep him safe. And this wasn't the first time. Many times fellow Christians had come to save Paul. They covered him to keep him from being beaten to death. They smuggled him out of cities. They provided him with food and shelter as he, as he traveled. God provided and protected for Paul throughout his ministry, and he does it here again. God keeps Paul from danger. And later we see that God breaks up the entire riot without one Christian being hurt. The city clerk will interrupt the riot and start talking about civil procedure and they need to go to court and and to the assembly and they shouldn't be rioting. And the entire riot is broken up by this, by this, this city clerk. God uses that city clerk to protect the Christians from harm. We've already seen so many incidents of Christians beaten and imprisoned and killed leading up to this in Acts 19. But here, God protects his children. It's as if God spreads out his arms and he tells the devil, no more, not today. He's showing us, he's reminding us, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. God is reminding us that he's our provider and and he's our protector. He reminds us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to him and they are safe. He reminds us that no weapon formed against us can prosper. He reminds us to trust him. He is divine and he is sovereign and his timing is perfect, that he will protect us. The greatest consequence of the power of the Holy Spirit is God's divine protection, keeping us from the hands of the enemy. So between 
uh, undergraduate and law school, I worked at a, a large law firm in New York City. I was a paralegal, and I was pretty good at my job, and I have, a, I have a pretty easy temperament. I can get along with most people. And so I was rewarded for my hard work by being assigned to work with the uh, most difficult partner. <laughs> Don't you love when you're rewarded for your hard work with more work? <laughs> And they tried to sweeten it up by giving me extra vacation days, but it just, uh, he, this man was notorious for being rude, for yelling at people, for demanding so much of people. And, 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 and if you're familiar with law firms, you know that the partners are the people who are in charge, right? Everybody works for the partners and, and to make sure that they look good, they look good before their clients. And they are really, you know, they're the owners of the firm. And so I was assigned to this particular partner on a matter that required us to go back and forth to Philly every day on the train. And it was going to last like a month or so. And, um, and I had met with the partner in person. I found out everything that we needed to do. I was going to be the lead paralegal on the case. And, and I had done all the prep work that we needed to do. And, um, and I had everything prepared for that first trip of many going to Philly. We were to meet at 5 a.m. at Penn Station on Monday morning. Well, the day before, on Sunday, the partner wanted to make sure that I had everything ready and that I knew everything that we needed to do. So on Sunday morning, he paged me. And this was back in the day where they gave you beepers and you thought it was really cool, but it was really just because they wanted to make you available 24 hours a day. Right? And so, so Sunday morning, he starts paging me. And I don't respond. He called my home phone, and I didn't answer. He called my cell phone, and I didn't pick up. He emailed me. Crickets. And then he called my supervisor, the one who assigns paralegals to the team, and he, and he, he tells him that he's looking for me, that I'm unresponsive, and I'm irresponsible, and he didn't think I was the right person for the team, and... and um, and I had no idea that any of this was happening. It was Sunday morning. One guess where I was. Right, right. And at the time, I had made the decision that I don't bring my pager and my phone to church. So eventually, after church, after going to brunch, you know, I got to make my way home. And um, before I could check my messages, my supervisor calls me and, and I pick up the phone and, and he immediately tells me what happened. And, and he's a nice guy. And he says, you know, this isn't, this isn't like you. What's going on? You know, he's really mad. And I'm like, it's Sunday. I'm in church. And he's like, oh, okay, okay. But you need to call him because he's furious. You need to call him now. As soon as I hung up the phone with him, the partner calls. And he proceeds to yell about how unresponsive I was, how irresponsible, how, maybe, uh, how he's going to have to ask for someone else to work with him, but I need to be there tomorrow because it's too late to find someone now. And, and he starts going on and on and on. And did I at least have everything ready? Could he at least trust me for that? And then at the end of all the yelling, he finally asked me, and why didn't you call me back? Calmly, and this was all God, by the way, 
I responded, it's Sunday and I was in church. His expectation was that I was to be available to him on Sunday morning. And maybe he would have fired me. He could have fired me, maybe. Or at least I'd have been reprimanded for not responding in a timely manner. But in that moment, he realized that Sunday mornings do not belong to him. They don't belong to the client. They don't belong to the firm. And I can only imagine the look on his face when I said church. (laughs) Because he immediately apologized. (laughs) And going forward, we actually never had any problems. He even requested to work with me a few times after that. And I was like, oh, gee, thank you. (laughs) But God protected me. And God protected my job. That's the point, right? That God will protect us. There may be people who don't understand the decisions that we have to make and the changes that we make in our lives. I had decided that Sunday mornings were not a work day for me. And I, and I know I wasn't the only Christian working in that firm, and I just wish that other people had, had set similar standards. Why don't we? Because we could shift the community. And we will get pushback, because people don't like change. And they don't understand what we're talking about when we talk about God's kingdom values. But God will protect us. And it will be worth it. And we will be living out that prayer that we pray all the time, right? That thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we we really want to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, it's going to require an individual change. And it's also going to require a community shift that we all get together. And we shift the culture, that we shift the community. And yes, there will be resistance. But the blessing is that God provides his divine protection. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer, God. And God, so we pray this morning, this afternoon, that you will prompt our hearts to change. And we pray, God, that as we each make our individual changes, God, that you will shift the community, that you would shift the culture, God, that you would allow us to be a part of the the shift in Inglewood and Bergen County and New Jersey and the world, God. And God, we know that there will be resistance, but we also know that you are greater than anything that would come against us. We trust your protection, God, and we trust your provision. So Lord God, we pray that you would have your way in the hearts and the minds and in the lives of each one of us here. It is through your son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, it's time for next steps. If you have the communication card, please pull it out. If you're using the the app, the Metro app, please pull it out at this time. I want to take you through the next steps, right? Because when we hear a sermon, there is a response. Number one, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've never 
said yes to Jesus before, if you know that you're not in a relationship, the first change that, that God is asking of you is that you, you come into relationship with him, that you accept his love because he's already loved you. He already loves you. He's been loving you from the beginning. And if you check that box, we ask that if you would meet us at the next table right outside those double doors and somebody will pray for you. We can give you some more information. Or if you just want to talk to one of the pastors, you're welcome to do that as well. Number two, please send me more information about socially responsible investing. There's material that you can give to your financial advisor to help you make these decisions. And so you can Google it, you can find it on your own, but if you want to, you can check that box. The email will come to me and I will send you some information. There's some from our denomination and there's some from some other organizations that can give you some tips on how to do so. Number three, I will sign up to walk and pray around Inglewood at least one Sunday in July from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. This is about us being present. This is about us helping to shift uh, the community here. We're starting today at 6 p.m. We'll be meeting at St. Paul's Episcopal Church on Ingle Street in Inglewood. If you check that box, I'll send you the information. Number four, I will ask God what internal changes he wants me to make, and I will make them. God may be saying something totally different to you, and that's good. And so whatever he's saying to you, commit to make that change. And number five, I will read Acts 20 verses 1 through 12 in preparation for next Sunday. We want to be prepared. We're continuing through our series and we hope that you've been enjoying us, um, enjoying this as we've been going through the book of Acts.